Welcome to Unpacking the Digital Shelf, where we explore brand manufacturing in the digital age. Hey everyone, Peter Crosby here from the Digital Shelf Institute. What makes us so darn special from every other species on Earth, and what do we do about it? According to author and technologist Byron Reese in his new book, Stories, Dice, and Rocks, it is our ability to imagine the future and recall the past, and by sharing that knowledge at an unprecedented scale to actually shape our future, including in commerce. Rob and I had a fascinating conversation with a brilliant man who shares his optimistic view of humanity backed up by data. So Byron, thank you so much for joining us today. I've been just consuming your books and watching your videos and uh, and Rob and I are just so thrilled to be able to talk to you today. Well, thank you. I am looking forward to it as well. You know, we got introduced to you via your company, Scissortail.ai, which uses an algorithm you develop for Amazon sellers to aid in the selection of winning products and overall profitability of listings. And we will get to that. but. In truth, that work, you know, however cool and useful, is really, you know, as I went through your writings, just the latest expression of your fundamental beliefs in the transformative power of technology. And frankly, at this point, even more refreshingly, a deep belief in human progress. So I have to ask you, why do you believe in human progress? <laughs> How are you well, feeling right now, Byron? <laughs> oh, you know, it, it is easy to, to get discouraged. Yeah. Uh, but um, but I really own, I believe three things pretty pretty strongly. Uh, the first is uh, is that technology is this thing we created that allows us to multiply what we're able to do, and that's kind of at its core what it does. Uh, much of human history has been about us not having enough. It was just never enough of the good stuff. There wasn't enough medicine for everybody, not enough food for everybody, not enough this, not enough education, not enough, all of that, because survival was just a full-time job. And and we would still be on that treadmill if we hadn't learned that trick of technology, which uh, multiplies, you know, what you're able to do. And while your body consumes 100 watts of power, that's kind of what you are. Then, you know, a long time ago, we, we, we harnessed animal power and then you could get 200 or 300 more watts or 500. But then we started harnessing fuels. And now if you live in the West, you know, right now you kind of in control of 10,000 watts of power. You have you and then 100 copies of you all working. So that's kind of the first thing is that we now have the capacity, at least, to um to do wonderful things that we could not have done in the past. And that's the first one. And then you say, well, we have the capacity, but do we have the will? And that's sort of my second uh, belief, which is I think people are basically good. I think the vast majority of people would rather build than destroy. I think most people are uh, are good. And you can kind of, you can kind of know that because um, I sold something on eBay not long ago. And I boxed it very carefully. I put it in a box and in a box and in a box. I triple boxed it. I did everything right. I shipped it to the person. And then they filed a complaint and said I had not shipped them the item. I had shipped them a box with a brick in it. The box with the brick in it. I didn't send them a box with a brick in it. But they they disputed it. And, of course, I, I had no way to prove I didn't send them a box with a brick in it. And so that was that. 
Uh, yeah. But you realize if if 2% of people did that or 3% or 5%, credit cards wouldn't work anymore. Like they all, and, and that kind of commerce wouldn't work. This kind of like distant commerce. So it's like, there's really just a few people that are kind of hanging on to the system, trying to exploit it. And I think most people are pretty good. So now we have the technology to do all this stuff. I think we we basically are, are good people. And then I can look across the long arc of history. You can go back as far as you want. You can, oh, 100 years ago, 500, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, you pick it. And almost without a doubt, anywhere in the world, things are better right now in that place than they were 1,000 years ago or even 100 years ago by any measure of progress. And, you know, there are a lot of them. There's... Uh, there's life expectancy, infant mortality, access to education, individual liberty, status of women, personal uh, self-government, all of those things are always getting better. So that's it. I think we have this trick that multiplies what we're able to do. We're basically good. And we have a 10,000 year track record of always making things get a little better, a little better in the long arc of history. And now it's easy to get discouraged by the and I'm not saying it's not a lot of work to do, but it's like we can do it. We can do it. And that's the that's what I believe in. So in this is the first podcast that is going to take us back farther than we've ever gone before. Usually, <laughs> usually Peter and I are talking about like the e-commerce era, which is 27, 28 years old. Every once in a while we get frisky and we'll talk about the long arc of retail history, which goes about 200 years when the first department store was created. But in 2018, you wrote a book called The Fourth Age, where you talk about the only three times in the history of humanity that technology has had like a true step function change in, in our evolution and development. And in, in the context of everything that you're saying right now, that humans are generally good, technology has generally made us all better off. Um, you say that there's three major points where the technology has really moved, moved the needle and we might be on the precipice of a fourth. So uh, at the risk of, of losing, losing our audience to going back thousands of years instead of just 27, uh, could, do you mind walking us, walking us through that arc and, and what is the fourth age that we are dangerously close to tripping into? All right. So let me take you back to a time when the Earth's crust had not fully solidified. <laughs> We're not going quite back that far. Uh, we're going to go back, I think, 100,000 years. So, look, all kinds of amazing technology have come along and done these wonderful things. You, you know, the printing press and electricity and the steam engine. But but in terms of ones that really just like nothing was ever the same again, I think the first one was about 100,000 years ago, and that's when um, we got language. We think we got that technology from another because of another technology fire which allowed us to cook our food and therefore consume a lot more calories and uh and we we got language and what you wouldn't guess about language is that the primary purpose of language is not communication uh, the primary purpose of communication is thought that's how you think uh and we even know this like um Helen Keller's got this wonderful quote where she talks about what her life was like before her teacher came. And she said she didn't even realize she was a thing, like that she was separate from the universe, that she was an entity. And she didn't really realize it was time. And all. And then once she had language, you can form all that in your head. And that's got to be like the big ta-da moment for, for us. And I think we got it 
relatively recently, and that would be the, the, the first one is when we got language. Because you can't even imagine life today with, like, imagine this podcast if we didn't have language. It would be a whole different thing. And then that would bring us to, um, <laughs> we would just all be grunting at each other. At exactly. Um, <laughs> We've done episodes like that, but, but not this one. <laughs> yeah, uh, the second one is, uh, is when we went to agriculture, and it, again, it, it isn't, it's always, or it's often what comes because of the technology, and it isn't really agriculture, you know, People say we settled down to grow wheat to make bread. There's more evidence suggesting maybe we settled down to make wheat to brew beer. Uh, it's not a joke. I definitely uh, buy that. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm right there. <laughs> All right. But whatever reason, we, we got in groups and we had these cities. And, uh, and that gave us the division of labor. And the division of labor is, of course, like about economics only free lunch like it says if you specialize you specialize and i specialize we're all going to be better off and it's hard to know just how much better off but it could be a hundredfold or a thousandfold imagine if you had to do everything yourself make your own clothing and make the cloth for your everything but we don't have to so we kind of got the division of labor and we that created all this wealth and then the third one was when we got these two technologies at the same time just a coincidence but we got writing in the wheel at the same time and that would be the third age in my reckoning. And those two technologies together gave us the nation state, which really has kind of been the, the framework that we, uh, that history has, has acted out through. Because with, with language, you, I'm sorry, with writing, you can promulgate laws. With the wheel, you can, uh, you can enforce borders and, and you can have uh, long, long distance transport and all these other things. So I think those are the kind of my way of, of looking at like the three big ones. The interesting thing is I do think we're at this fourth one. And I, I think it really is. Uh, we're, we're, we're building machines that do our thinking for us. And we're building machines that, that substitute for our body robots and computers. And, you know, then you have to say, well, if something else is thinking and something else is doing, what are we, what are we about? And that's a question we're going to be able to, we're going to be able to ask and answer ourselves over the next few years well i mean you you answered it almost at the top which is that we generate 100 watts of power <laughs> and so I, the robots will just plug into into a some right. collective us yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know and I've, i feel like your new book um which is called stories dice and rocks that think and i have to say the subtitle because it's it's it goes to your positive thesis how humans learn to see the future and shape it I feel like you. I feel like you sort of hint at where we might be going based on what we've done, and and you examine three leaps in our history that demonstrate a, a what you call a special status to our ability to imagine the future and recall the past, which sets us apart from every other creature on Earth. So, besides you know once again proving the enduring power of threes, which is my favorite thing in the world, what what is this view that gives you that? optimism that we can sort of innovate our way through the biggest challenges we confront. You know, when I think of what we're facing right now, and I know a long arc of history, but I, I think of climate change and some believe that we will figure out a way to, I don't know, vacuum stuff out of the atmosphere or whatever the heck it might be. But how do you apply that sort of ability to things like of that scale that seem, that seem different than what we've been through as a race before, but maybe not? Love your thoughts. So, 
uh, I started, I wrote this book because I, because my eye doctor asked me a question during an eye exam, uh, frankly, and uh, it was basically, why aren't there any, uh, you know, as I put it in the book, where are the, where are the Bronze Age beavers? Where are the Iron Age iguanas? Where are the um, pre-industrial prairie dogs? Why isn't there like a whole train of animals that are just kind of behind us a little bit coming up, you know? Dolphins are supposed to be all like smart and everything. But, uh, and, and so I was like, why in the world? Everybody likes to say, you know, we're just another animal. But if you look around the world, we look like aliens, the way we live and what we have compared to say a dolphin, you know, they don't even have like, forget the internet. They don't have telegraphs. They don't have mail. Like they don't have anything. And so I was like, well, what's different about us? And that's what this book was about. And really, I kind of got it down to we we believe in the existence of two things that don't exist and they're, they're called the future and the past animals don't like i write a lot about this but animals don't have knowledge of the future or even episodic memory of the past and remembering specific things what happened last thursday and yet we do and what that does what that does is not only does it allow us to, to plan and to see the future and maybe we're just looking 30 seconds into the future. I could go up the back of that mountain and there might be a bear or I could go this way. You know, you're thinking about the future and you're running scenarios and you're drawing an experience in the past to figure out what would happen. And that is really like our thing. It doesn't even sound like that much. But what it means is that uh, our knowledge accumulates Every generation, a little more, a little more, a little more, it, it's stacking up. Whereas every beaver born today is just born into like, they're making the same dam that beavers made a thousand years ago, which is the same dam they made 3,000 years ago and 5,000 years ago. So <clears throat> I'll skip the other two real quickly. Well, the second one was when we um, created probability. Like we learned, sure, we could imagine the future but could we predict it well that's when we invented probability but really the heart of that book is about how um the heart of that book is really about how all throughout human history we have not uh had a collective memory so basically the story of human history is somebody learns something and figures something out and then they die or they tell somebody else and then that person dies or they tell somebody and that person forgets it who knows? Like all these such things. a dark version of history. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but you look at the reason you know it is because all of these things we just that should have been obvious in the data that we just stumble across through chance and dumb luck. Um, I don't know how long the antidepressant Wellbutrin was prescribed for before some people were like, "Hey, I don't crave cigarettes as much," and then they were like, "Really." And so, you know, they do a test and then they they say, oh, this helps people stop smoking. Let's call it Zyban, same exact drug. Uh, and, and so things like that, that all of them are in the data, but we lose the data, right? Like we don't, I mean, we forget it or what have you. Uh, you wonder what people have figured out that has been lost. So uh, in our time, you know, we have these, these machines that can not only handle a lot of data, but we're putting sensors on them so that they can collect data. And what they're going to be able to do is log everything, every human activity and its outcome. And now that can be frightening in a lot of ways, but just like be optimistic for a moment so that everybody's life experience becomes basically the data that makes everybody else's life better. 
Like if I had a hundred years of data of everything people did and how it turned out, I mean, just imagine how that could inform my life going forward. And, and, and like that. So what we're building is a collective memory as a species. We're using computers to look for patterns in it. We're logging everything. And at some point, at some point, everything you do will be logged. Every word you say, every breath you take, everything you look at, what happens to your eyes, whether they dilate, what's, everything. You know, I'm going to end up with a, a skillet that uh, beeps if there's E. coli in my food. And I want that. I would want that. I want that. I, I want spoons that'll tell me if there's whatever. But the the unanticipated half of it is that's logging everything you cook and then everything you eat. And as we do all of that, uh, we're going to build this knowledge base of, of human experience that will mine to make everybody's life better going forward. You know, it's it's funny the timing of you mentioning the the forgetfulness of humanity and the potential for this fourth age of AI to get us through this like constant forgetting. Um, I've been rereading uh, the great Carl Sagan's cosmos recently is slowly a little bit at a time. And I just got through the section where he goes through uh, effectively a history of astronomy. And there's a big part of it about the Greeks 2,500 years ago uh, where they had figured out a lot of stuff. And I just pulled up one quote from my Kindle highlights right now. Um, the fundamental idea that the earth is a planet, that we are citizens of the universe was rejected and forgotten. This idea was first argued by Aristarchus, born on Samos three centuries after Pythagoras, and so on and so forth, right? So there's this, the, the sun is the center of the universe. The sun is just one star among other stars. The stars are kind of just like the sun, but they're really far away. Um, the earth is round. Like all of these things were things that there was a particular society that knew all of them to be true. And then it took us, you know, 2000 years almost uh, before we had Copernicus and Kepler and like the, the folks that kind of reinvented the ancient thinking. Um, so it, the part of some of this stuff is just remembering the data, but some of it also in AI, one thing that's kind of interesting is it helps us see patterns that are really, really hard to zoom out and see, like the um, smoking cessation, well, butrin example, right? And so I, I want to bring this to Scissortail for a second and, and how this applies to Amazon and Scissortail and people that are creating uh, product strategies. What's kind of interesting about the internet is the, it enables the long tail in almost anything. Um, when Chris Anderson wrote the book, The Long Tail, he had the stat that was like, 50% of iTunes store downloads were the long tail. And yet the median number of downloads for a song in the long tail was zero. I mean, it's, it's just, and, but it's still in volumes, 50% of the mass. Um, what's in, you know, if you look at a grocery store or Walmart or whatever, there's only so much shelf space. It's only covering the fat head of products, the very popular products. Whereas in theory, 50% of all product purchases in the economy should happen on the long tail if it follows the same power law that almost every other product category. But that means like thousands and thousands and tens of thousands or possibly millions of product ideas, all of which can make some money. And how do you even find these things? How do you identify them? So, so to walk us through exactly what Scissortail is doing in that space with Amazon for product creation, um, I, I just love this as an example of everything that you're talking about. Oh, well, thank you. So Scissortail is um, 
I got really interested in just the idea of like how, how do products get made and how do people figure out what people want and how do they make it? And, uh, and I read that, you know, the majority, I think 72% of all Amazon sales are still somebody doing a search, clicking on a non-sponsored link and buying that product. I mean, it's really a, a kind of a basic thing, but how do you know like what to make? And, and as I got into it, I realized most people looked at demand signals. They said, what, what are people searching for? And, uh, but that's only like half of it, right? Because I think there's 5,000 garlic presses on Amazon right now. And so if, if <laughs> for them, and so would you make another garlic press? Well, the answer to the question is, well, I would make one if I could rank on page one of the search results. Sure. But otherwise I wouldn't. And so I started working on that problem. Um, and so we tried to figure out what are things that people could make uh, that had essentially no competition or very weak and poor competition. And that that would kind of draw the market towards making things that had kind of uh, latent desire that built in that people wanted, but it didn't just jump out at you. And so we had to figure out a lot of ways to... Um, we basically made a way to score listings and figure out searches for which the products that came up are very poor or insufficient or they don't match the query. And, and so they, they look like these areas that you can build products. And I think we identified 50, 55,000 products that we think you could make and uh, sell on Amazon and rank out the first page of search results without spending any money on ads. And uh, that was what we, we did. It's taken two years. Uh, I raised I raised venture money to do it and it took two years to build it. And you know, it's, it's ready. We've proven it out internally and we have some external proof points and and that's what uh, that's what we did. That's incredible. So it's basically you're looking at to I mean to your point, there's search behavior that's obvious, like um, I don't know, bookmark or garlic press or whatever, where it's a known category of thing. But then there's then there's like kind of a, a remove of that, which might be left-handed garlic press. I don't know. I'm I'm exactly. not a lefty, but exactly. Yeah. So is, is it that is it that that type of use case that you're looking for? It's like the left-handed garlic press. Literally, nobody's making them. If you you know if you make a left-handed garlic press and that's the product title, you're going to be the number one search result, and you're competing with nobody. And there's enough volume there for you to make money. Is that is that the almost, idea? That's almost it. Because what we did is we started that. I mean, because you can just start off by saying like, what are searches people do where none of the products come up have the words in it of the search? Like you can just start with that, and that. But but pickings are a little slim because then you say, well, what if there's one person who makes a left-handed garlic press? Yeah, uh, and then, and 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 it's misspelled. All the words are misspelled in it. Oh no, no. Let's say there's two people, and the second one doesn't have any photographs, or maybe there's three or four or five or whatever that have these quality markers that say this is not like killing it. They're not killing it with this left-handed garlic press. Uh, that's what we try to because you see, there's twenty spots that are. You, well, 10 spots anyway, you're competing on. Uh, and if you can just get one or two of them, or, you know, if you can just get one, you're in good, you're in good shape. So uh, very close to what you said, but we just put a lot of energy into scoring all the other things that come up and saying, wow, all these left-handed garlic presses are terrible. Uh, if you make a good one, um, then uh, you'll rank on uh, search results. Got it. Well, actually, that, that's a, that's actually really interesting because I, I don't I don't think anyone knows exactly how many products are on Amazon, 600, 700 million or whatever. 
Um, so you're basically looking at product categories where there's a bunch of loser products as well. So it's, it's not just the search behavior, it's the search behavior ideally combined with existing purchases. So it's it's like the, somebody else has already done the hard work of proving the market, even if they're doing it with a crap product. Um, and you could just swoop in there and be like a good product in a crap product cat, you know, category. And I would imagine that most of these categories are small enough that like Procter and Gamble is going to look at them and say, that's like a $10 million, 10 million product category. I don't care. So I'd assume that a lot of them look like that, but you had $10 million in sales is a lot of money to a lot of people though. Right. I mean, our threshold for that 55,000, if you say that 55,000th product in terms of revenue, stock income does about a hundred thousand a year. Uh, that's where we cut it off and said, well, anything below that, we're not even going to, then we're really dealing with a lot of data, but uh, that's exactly right. You know, we made a 10 point kind of score that would score all the listings. We kind of assume that a new listing from a competent seller will be about a seven. And so what you want are just a bunch of products that come up that are twos and threes and threes and fours and ones and twos and fives. And then you're like, I'll kill it in there. And we've been able to prove it out. Um, you know, I was really worried about doing this business because the learning cycle is very long, right? It could suggest you should make a left-handed garlic press. I'm not going to get data back on that for almost a year, right? By the time we make it and get it in there. And so I'm like, oh my gosh, if these algorithms need uh, constant <laughs> updating and tweaking, I'll never be able to do it. But luckily, uh, the data is so kind of compelling that we were able uh, to, to do it in just, I think, two passes. So the 50... 5,000 product, if you produced it, would make pretty reliably 100K in, in gross sales. So you could take like the 10 worst products in that 55,000 product list and have a seven-figure business. That's exactly right. Yeah, and that's awesome. With no, and with no ad dollars is, is what I heard you say, Baron. Like that's, that's the important thing, right? Because otherwise you can... And by the way, it, 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 it counts that. It basically says... If left-handed garlic press brings up searches that are sponsored, uh, those those slots are not available for you to win in. So even if it's 10 terrible listings, but they're all sponsored, you, you can't beat them. So it had to be ones that, those are basically unavailable slots for you to compete in. Uh, but if we just said, oh, if you're willing to spend whatever you want, then uh, yeah, so we had to do just organic search. So, so Byron, you know, our listeners are a lot of the people you might think, of, you know, as you're sitting in the optometrist chair, was that, was that what it was? Basically, uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and, and as you're sitting in that chair and you're thinking about, well, how do products get made? Like, what is the next great idea or next worthy idea or possible idea? A lot of our folks that, that, that do this are in the fighting in the e-commerce world, the commerce world, you know, bringing products to market every day. Mm -hmm. you know, how is it that, you know, if, if someone was, you know, you're uh, at a bar or, or a restaurant and, you know, you're on a trip and eating alone. And so someone sidles up next to you and you start talking about this and you find out that it's a, you know, a, a head of e-commerce or, or, product person at a brand manufacturer kind of what how would you say here's some things you can go home 
with or without my algorithm and and um, and light up the board kind of with with a way to find those ideas or be you know be innovative in this in this state oh now that i i think there's a, a lot of good things you can do i mean um we're 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 in a world where we have an enormous amount of data right and uh i guess there's two two things also two things the first would be uh find data that other people are ignoring and use that to inform your choices. I, I noticed that a lot of Amazon sellers kind of seem to migrate to the same vendors and the same data vendors, but it's a big world full of a lot of data. I, like I think of um, Alan Greenspan, you remember him, a ch mm -hmm. chairman of the Fed from the back. He, he watched two indicators. Uh, one of them was how many um, cardboard boxes were being made and how many wooden pallets were being made. And the theory was that when those numbers heat up, the economy is going to heat up in six months. Because in order to like ramp everything up, you got to have boxes, to put it all in and pallets to, to do it. And so he watched those. He he looked at data that other people ignored. I, I, I could give more examples about the fax machine and, and how the companies that developed it didn't monetize it because I think they were looking at the wrong data and all of that. So I would say, you know, be really... Um, creative about the kinds of data sources you get and think outside i don't want to say outside the box it's so trite but try to think of like really outside uh, the palette <laughs> thank you thank you things that you can glean learnings from that are going to be so far off everybody else's radar that it's really like your private data and that would be the first one and then um i would say the second thing is uh i knew somebody who made tvs and they used to do these focus groups. It was a hard business because it's largely commoditized, right? Everybody's 45 inch old. And they would go around and they would ask people like, what problems do you have with your computer, uh, with your TV? And uh, people say, I don't have any problem with my TV. I love my TV. And then they would say, do you ever lose your remote control? And he's like, I lose my remote control all the time. And then, uh, so what they've done is they are putting 10 cents worth of electronics in this TV to put a button on it that when you press it, it makes the remote control start playing music. Now, they solved a problem that other people, that nobody was expecting them to solve. Nobody said, it's my TV's fault I lose my remote. Um, and so there are all of these ways that we can now build things to, to, to solve problems that nobody would even ever imagine. And like, this is a... Bad example, because I'm just making it up off the thing. But I, uh, I've always wondered, like, why my, why? No, that's not even a good example. Never mind. I'll leave it at that. Solve <laughs> problems that other people, uh, that nobody expects you to solve. Like, be looking. I, th I want the one with whatever. Yeah, and I feel like what what you're talking about is solving for experience. Like thinking of the the totality of an experience around a product. Or that's at least part of what you're talking about. I think that's even and, better than how I said it. Like, uh, <laughs> I will point out. Yes, that's exactly right. I, yeah, which I think is is in this in the future that we are headed towards, and even now, the experience is so much of what people are paying for, and that requires really understanding your customer, and then not as you just pointed out, not necessarily what they would tell you, but what they feel or what enrages them, <laughs> asking those things around, yeah. And you know, another thing, like, um, 
you know, this is not easy stuff, honestly. It's really hard to, to, to come up with things that people would like and make them and make them awesome and do them and write. Like there's so many steps. And I and, and yet the difficulty of the task, I think, always seems to be uh, contrary to a lot of business books that seem to suggest that, uh, you know, you're, you can be successful in business if you just remember these five simple rules, uh, these nine simple rules about like how you should, you know, just basic business axioms. And if you just stick to those, you're going to be okay. And uh, I don't believe that anymore. Like, because, and what's terrible about it is that then when you do fail, as I do, and I'm sure most people do, you feel like twice the chump because it was supposed to be easy. Like it was supposed to be like really easy to do. Uh, but what I kind of realized along the way is that um, business advice uh, almost always has like, an opposite that's supposedly equally true. Like people tell you, you know, look before you leap. That seems like good advice, right? But they also tell you, he who hesitates is lost. Well, that's exactly <laughs> the opposite piece of advice. Or um, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, right? But nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? They're exact opposites. If some company kind of like changes with the times and they go out of business, the people are like, yeah, they didn't stick to the knitting. They should have stuck to the knitting. And then if they stick to the knitting and they go out of business, they're like, they should have changed with the times. They should have changed. And what I kind of realized is that business is not about learning a few little rules that are, it's knowing when to apply the rule, uh, the, the rules that you know, and that's a much harder thing to do. So I would just be, um, I think just a, 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 an upfront, a, a, admission that while we try to distill things down so that people, you know, busy people can absorb them. Uh, I never want to forget that this is really, really hard, what we're all trying to do and very difficult. This is uh, the Ben Horowitz books titled the hard thing about hard things. Oh, is, is, uh, I, I mean, it's, it's, uh, meant to try to convey what you're getting at, which is like, there, there is no easy when you're building something new. And um, I, th I think a lot of people want to believe, I mean, it's like a, I mean, in America, you want to believe there's an easy button to all kinds of problems. You want to believe there's an easy button to losing weight. You know, you want to believe there's an easy button to starting a business. You want to, that's why you got all these meme investors and crypto and you know, speculators and just want the, you know, there's an easy way out. Um, at the end of the day, there's not an easy way out. There's there's a lot of different hard ways, and you have to find one. Uh, so yeah, I, I strong strong agreement from me. Well, Byron, thank you so much. I mean, I, I you know as we think about these creators who are our listeners and and are in this position of, um, actually they probably chose e-commerce or e-commerce e chose them. Uh, and digital chose them because they want to do the hard things because that's what's fun and frustrating and and building and so i i just can't i well i guess i can recommend your new book enough i feel like you know if if uh if you're kind of looking for sparks that might give you a chance in those quiet moments to make a leap um i think stories dice and rocks that think uh is something that you should 
pick up and we'll have uh, the link to it in our show notes. And, and Byron, we really appreciate you bringing your, your brain and your heart and your, your optimism to, to the podcast. It's, it's been a joy. Thank you so much for having me. I would love to come back. Thanks again to Byron for sharing his viewpoints with us. The link to his new book is in the show notes or search Byron Reese, R-E-E-S-E on Amazon. And assuming he eats his own AI dog food, it should come right up there on top of the listings. Become a member at digitalshelfinstitute.org for all the latest coming out from the DSI. And thanks for being part of our community.